Are you in a leadership role trying to figure out how to convince others to change their mind? Have you ever wondered why is leading and influencing others so darn hard? Are you looking for practical answers to these two vital questions? If so, welcome to my podcast, Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. I'm your host, Denise Cooper, and I am a storyteller. I interview thought leaders and people just like you who are learning and practicing the art and expanding on the science of leadership. Listen as my guests and I talk about what it takes to be a remarkable leader in the 21st century. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone who is in the reach of my voice. Thank you so much for joining me on Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. This is my platform where I share the expert advice of other thought partners with you. My goal is this. If you want to know how to execute on your goals, business strategies, or life plans, you first need to know how to get from where you are today to where you want to be. It is that gap that keeps us from feeling like we are very successful. But to succeed, you have to move one step forward, one step, one step, one step. And to do that, it's all about mindset and action. My guests and I share wisdom and insight so that you can achieve more with less so that now you can close the gap. I have got a treat for you today, and I think it is seriously relevant given we are all coming out of quarantine and pandemics. My guest today is Jerry Valentine, and I'm going to tell you a little bit, but before I do that, let me give you some background. Spencer Johnson, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with, he's the guy who wrote Who Moved My Cheese once said, a change imposed is a change opposed. Think about that. A change imposed is a changed opposed. Disruption, change, it's nothing new. What's changed is the speed and consistency of it. The changes we're experiencing are more than getting new software updates or a new iPhone. Over the last 14 years, everything has changed. And psychologists say what we're feeling or some of us are suffering from is a loss of control and predictability. Both are fundamental to our well-being. The bad news is we are in the early stages of a massive disruption of our lifestyles. Think about it. From droughts in the Western United States, cryptocurrency, 5G, virtual schools, online shopping, breakthroughs in medicine that change the way we, we even have healthcare, space travel. And that's a sample of the easier disruptions we're facing. What's harder to adjust to are the disruptions that are closer to home. Think about this, career uncertainty. What used to be does not exist anymore when it comes to thinking about our careers. The rise of alternative facts, the reimagining of employment agreements. So what does it mean to actually work for someone else or work for ourselves? Our social and moral center and the learning curve is proving quite challenging for everyone at work. There are no easy answers. The big question you should be asking yourself is, where can we exercise control, attain psychological safety and well-being? Well, it all starts with understanding how to roll with the changes. My guest, as I told you before, is Jerry Valentine, and he has written a fantastic book, which is available on Amazon. It's called The Thriving Mindset, Tools for Empowerment in a Disruptive World. And guys, this is so timely. In it, he describes and offers solutions to the big problems we face, both as individuals and as a society. Gary is quoted as saying, we do a very poor job preparing people for a changing world, especially for the kind of disruption that we're facing right now. Today, we're going to talk about a few of his proven tools that he's found valuable and are designed to prepare us and teach us how to build resiliency, overcome setbacks, and understand that adversity can be an, a source of opportunity. He has 27 years plus, he's like me, I only admit to 25, with Fortune 100 companies in leadership experience. He is a trusted advisor to corporate executives, entrepreneurs, change makers, and high-performance individuals of all kinds. 
everybody. Silent questioning and welcome. Sherry, how are you doing today? Hi, Denise. It's great to be here with you. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm so excited about our talk. Good, good, good. So, you know, people want to get to know you. They can't see you. They can only hear you. Disruption. That's not, you know, that's not kind of a coaching thing. And leaders don't really talk about that much. How did you, how did you, what's your story behind this? How'd you get to this? Yeah, so that's my story exactly. People don't talk about it. I believe that disruption is fundamental to life. I, I think that change, uncertainty, disruption, that, 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 those are the one constant. I believe that so many of the problems that people face as leaders, so many of the problems people face in their careers, and in fact, some of the most daunting problems we face as a society are actually about an inability to deal well with disruption. And one of the questions I talk about in the book, uh, something that's always fascinated me, is, is the question of like, why is it that adversity causes some people to break and other people to break records? And I think that this, this notion of that ability to break records at a time of adversity is actually not a trait. I think it's a skill. Mm. And I think it's a skill that, as you mentioned, we do a very poor job of training people in. And, and you mentioned many things about like the pace of change right now, the pace of disruption at this moment. And all true, all things that you and I, I agree very much on. In fact, I hear there are several things we agree very much on. But with the thing I tell people is, if you feel overwhelmed by change at this moment, recognize this is the slowest pace of change you will experience for the rest of your life. Absolutely. So with I know. It, it, and that's the really scary part, right? That's a really scary part or the really exciting part, because mm -hmm. I, I think that some of the things I talk about in the book are that, yes, this is I believe this is the most disruptive time in human history. P.S. I wrote the book before COVID. It's just a coincidence <gasps> that I am launching the book during COVID. Oh, yeah. The book was in editing, in final editing, when we all went home for COVID. Mm. And I spent my last uh, moments in thinking about before we, we actually hit went to press, like, are the tools I articulated in the book equal to the moment? And I believe they are. Okay. So COVID is, COVID is just the latest example of disruption. Following COVID, we're going to have lots of disruption. And that, that again, that, that pace of change and that pace of uncertainty you feel right now, recognize that's the slowest you're going to experience for the rest of your life. And that is what called me to write the book. Mm -hmm. Because I think that there are fundamental skills that we can build in ourselves mm -hmm. that prepare us to, to deal with disruption. Now, now you asked about what, why did I write the book? And I write the book, I wrote the book because many of those things you, you spoke about in my, my bio that I'm you know very grateful for, very happy to have had that very long and successful corporate career that I did before launching my business, as, as happy as I am about my bio, it doesn't speak to something that's very fundamental about me, which is where I came from. So I started out as the son of a single mother growing up in a very low income part of New York City. And we, we struggled tremendously during my, my days growing up. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, to the point that we sometimes did without things like heat or electricity. And my, my mother was one of the hardest working people that I've ever known. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 12, 14, 16 hour days were just the norm for her. Right, right. But despite how hard she worked, there were many times when she had to face a choice between paying utility bills and putting food on the table. Mm -hmm. And there, you know, there are all kinds of things that come of a life like that. So, you know, we lived in a fairly dangerous area. There are many times as a young kid, I was afraid she wouldn't make it home at night. So there, there were, it was a tremendously disruptive time. I was very fortunate to leave that environment. I went on to earn an Ivy League degree, followed by my MBA, and then ultimately my Fortune 100 career. But something I discovered during the early days in my career was that that disruption of my life that was standard in my life in my early days became my competitive advantage in the corporate world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, put it quite simply, you know, it, the corporate world is a really tough place. I started out with American Express, went on to Pfizer. So, you know, really competitive environments in which I spent a lot of time. But by that point in my life, no matter what happened in the office, 
I was always going home to a safe apartment mm-hmm. with heat and electricity, mm-hmm. no matter what was thrown at, and food. And so food. no matter what was thrown at me in the office, it was it, it was not equal to what I had already overcome. Mm-hmm. So that became a competitive advantage. When I went on to lead teams, I found that I could impart some of the skills that I had from overcoming that disruption and that made me successful to them to make mm-hmm. my team my my team members the people I was leading more successful and even people who came from very different backgrounds than I did. Mm-hmm. When I started my coaching practice, I found that I tend to attract clients who are either trying to step up to a new opportunity or trying to overcome some type of setback or disruption in their business or their career. And that is what I really specialize in. My book is a compilation of the lessons I've learned and the lessons that I try to impart on my clients mm-hmm. in, in one place. So it, it's all those tools and things that, that I've spoken about for years in one place. And, and it's designed as kind of a hands-on guide yeah. to help people deal with disruptive times. Yeah. And then if yeah. would have it, I'm launching it during a global pandemic. So, <laughs> so, you know, you, you can't make this stuff up. And, and to my point, which I wrote, you know, two years ago when I was like writing the book, say, well, you know what? The disruption you feel right now, hold on, that's the slowest it's ever going to be. Boom, global pandemic. <laughs> so Absolutely. here we are. Absolutely. So that, Absolutely. That's kind of the, the full story of what's behind the book. It It is my story. It is my journey. It is the lessons I've learned. And then all the lessons are encapsulated into hands-on tools because mm-hmm. the point is for people to be able to read this and then find the tools that they need to thrive through the disruption in their lives and to find what I call, I, I, I think we can always look at disruption as a signal. Mm-hmm. We're also standing in front of an opportunity. And I, I happen to believe that that is true right now. Mm-hmm. And, and my goal is to equip more people with the tools to become the ones who break records rather than be becoming the ones who are broken by the disruption that's in front of us right now. Well, you know what, but that's, that's very interesting. And I'm not sure that people really understand the difference between change and disruptive change. And I and your book really talks about the difference between the two of them. Can you give us a quick definition of you know? I mean, just you know, change. There's one kind of change of I decided this morning that you know I'm going to change the makeup I wear or the shoes I wear or the way I drive to work or something like that. But that's not really what you're talking about. Can you give us a like a working definition of the difference between change and disruptive disruptive change? Yeah. And disruptive change that leads to opportunity, which is really Mm -hmm. the important thing. Mm -hmm. So, excuse me, here's an example I like to use. And and it's an example of a company that we're all familiar with, Kodak. So Mm -hmm. I believe certainly you and I, and I believe everyone probably on this podcast is of an age where we remember Kodak. So one of, you know, a tremendously successful company that went bankrupt in 2012 mm-hmm. after more than a century in business. Many people might say that the bankruptcy was because of digital photography. Mm-hmm. But what most people don't know is that Kodak actually invented the first digital camera back in 1975. Did you know oh, that? Wow. No, I didn't. Yes. The first digital camera was invented by an engineer by the name of Steve Sasson, who worked for Kodak. Mm -hmm. And he was actually interviewed by the New York Times not not long ago. And he spoke about what those early days were like at Kodak when he was going around the company trying to get anyone to listen to him about this new invention and the the promise it held for the company. Mm -hmm. And what he encountered from this disruptive change of di- digital photography was nothing but resistance. Mm-hmm. And it, it, you know, it's a resistance we can all understand. It, it was a fear-based reaction. So as you and I will both recall, back in the day, we took our pictures often in Kodak cameras mm-hmm. on Kodak film, yep. which we took to the drugstore and had developed in Kodak chemicals. Mm-hmm. And in a couple of weeks, we got our, our prints back on what? So Kodak paper. paper, right? Right. So they had the cycle. This, that's it exactly. So this new invention, this disruptive invention of digital photography, threatened to disrupt 
the Kodak value chain at every step in the cycle. Right. And something happened that I call the adversity fear paralysis cycle. So if, if we accept that this notion of disruption is just normal in life, mm -hmm. it, it is just a normal advent of life. It might, it might be a disruptive technology. It might be, you know, a reorganization at your company, or it might be, oh, I don't know, a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the natural response to disruptive change is fear. Mm -hmm. And it, it's that fear that we are, are, that we may not be able to meet the demands of whatever that disruptive disruption is. Now, my principle is that there's nothing wrong with being afraid. Mm -hmm. It's what you do with, when you're afraid that matters. And the problem is when that fear turns into what I call a paralysis, which is an inability to respond productively to whatever the disruption is. Mm -hmm. And paralysis always causes one of two things to happen. Either the initial disruption gets worse mm -hmm. or a new disruption arises. Now, we saw that with Kodak, right? So they there was fear because of a disruptive technology that was a threat to every step in the value chain. The paralysis was resistance to the to the new invention. This this guy Sasson talks about, you know, his desperation trying to explain it and and at one point he says he was trying to explain to people, to the top brass at Kodak, that this invention wasn't just about taking pictures, that this, this invention might, you know, someday make it possible to, oh, I don't know, send photographs over the phone line. <laughs> right? Now, so, that's, visionary. Like, now that's, that's visionary. Now, vision, that's visionary, right? Yeah. But, but because of that paralysis, nobody was able to, to hear. Yeah. And the... Like we all know how that story that story ends, right? So Kodak did not move. Competitors came in. Kodak did eventually get into the digital photography business, but, but by then it was way too late, and the com the competition had an insurmountable lead. So we see the cycle, right? Disruption, fear, paralysis, more disruption, and it goes into a downward spiral. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So so then people ask me, okay, so Jerry, what do I do about it? I get I, I get the cycle. So the the key is to come back to what I said, to recognize that that fear that you feel at a time of disruption is natural. There is mm -hmm. nothing wrong with being afraid. Mm -hmm. It is what you do when you're afraid that mm -hmm. matters. Mm -hmm. And through the tools I, met, I, I outline in the book, you can learn that that fear that you feel at a time of disruption is also a signal that you're standing in front of an opportunity. And you can use that fear as a kind of a springboard to leapfrog out of disruption and towards that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I, I call that taking a courageous leap. Yeah. And this yeah. thing I call the thriving mindset right. is all about cultivating the capability to take those courageous leaps at times of disruption, such as the moment that we're at right now. Yeah, and and I think, but you know, there's there were you have in the book eleven dimensions of the of the thriving mindset, and the first one, this adversity, per, fear, and paralysis cycle, is an interesting one because most of the time the body just takes over and it literally shuts down our ability to have critical mm -hmm. thinking. And so when you talk about taking courageous leaps, the way we take a courageous leap, at least I think is that we we somehow slow it down enough that we can see the possibility. We focus on the possibility of something better or we latch on to a solution that just kind of barrels in and and you just can't let it go. It's like a dog with a bone kind of thing, or at least that's what I've seen happen. But I think what stops most people, particularly in organizations, is exactly what you described that happened in Kodak. So here's a guy who literally could see the future. No one believed him mm -hmm. and he couldn't rally the troops or enough troops to get a pilot off. And I think there are many people inside companies who actually do see how they could help in, uh, bring innovation. They could help the company survive or thrive, but don't have the ability to either talk about it enough so that it becomes crystal clear mm -hmm. or you know, rally the troops, you know, yeah. to kind of get it done. What did, what did, what did you come up with? How do you, how do you get past that first issue? So there are quite a few opportunities to do that. And that that's literally why I call it 
11 dimensions of a thriving mindset. So it's how we mm-hmm. prepare ourselves. And one of the, you know, I will mention one that I talk about the book of, in the book, and it's one I've experienced many times. It's about uh, boxed in thinking versus out of the box thinking. And uh, I I dedicate a whole chapter to this. So the, you know, we've all been told at some point or another, think out of the box Mm -hmm. or, you know, get your team to think out of the box. Mm -hmm. The, the, The problem is that, nobody ever actually tells you how to think out of the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, That's exactly and, right. And I, and, I, and I thought about this quite a bit. And what I believe is that that notion of a box is actually a metaphorical box that, that's made up of certain behaviors. Mm-hmm. And there are behaviors of things like closed-mindedness or blame or a lack of taking accountability. And what we need to do is learn to break down those walls. So I'll tell you another story that I talk about in the book. It it happened at a much earlier stage in my career. You can't see me, but for, you know, Denise can see me. I, I have white hair right now. And But when this story happened, I had black hair. And I had become the senior director of marketing for a small publishing company. And this was a continuity publisher. So it was direct marketing and, you know, lots of mailings and complicated analysis and all that. And it, it was my first week on the job. And I was at lunch with the editorial director in my in my division. And this was a person who was my peer, but you know, was many years older than 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 I was at the time. And this person was a seasoned editor and you know had come up the ranks in editorial. And we were at lunch and you know, bear in mind, this was this was back in the early 90s. So it was way before iPads or and, and laptops. You know, I don't even think we had laptops yet. We had big desktops. And I was talking to my peer about, you know, this notion of, of books on computer. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, wouldn't that, isn't that really interesting? We should talk about that. And I got this really chilly reception. Yeah, yeah. And this, this person looked across the lunch table at me and said, and, and I quote, I cannot imagine a time when I would not have been able to lie on the living room floor as a small child and have whole worlds of knowledge open up to me with every turn of the page. Now, not realizing my mistake, I I said, well, suppose you could like lie on the floor in front of your computer and with every click of the mouse, have whole new worlds of information open up. There was literally no response. The rest of the lunch was very uncomfortable. And quite frankly, we had a chilly relationship for the next three years when when I worked there. Now, I'll tell you a little bit more about this person. So quite a bit older than me had come up the ranks as an old school publishing person Mm -hmm. and, you know, just was somewhat threatened by technology. Mm -hmm. So what I had done is I had sullied something that this person loved. Mm-hmm. books, like a real bibliophile, with something they distrusted, technology. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there was boxed in thinking going on because there mm-hmm. was closed mindedness. And this person was not able to take that courageous leap out of the box to out of the box thinking. But there was also a capability in me that I had not yet developed. Okay. So I had not yet developed the communication capability to first understand where this person was coming from, right. and then to paint my idea in a context that they could understand. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Finish your story because so, I want to talk so through this because I deal with yeah. this with my clients all the time. And yeah. I'd so to be able to talk back and forth about how you do it versus the way I do it. Yeah. So it, you know, it is, there are about several things. It's about understanding your audience. It's about being able to paint your idea within the context of the business problem. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's about being able to find the right audience or even the right industry mm-hmm. for, for your idea. Now, now in this case, we're going to fast forward now through today, you know, the publishing industry has been completely disrupted. As it turns yeah. out, like that would have been the wrong environment to bring that idea forward. No one was ever mm-hmm. going to move forward on that. And that is one of the things I advise my clients on all the time. You know, for the, the first thing is look in the mirror. Like, let's look at your capabilities. Let's look at your skill set because you cannot just expect people to follow you. There, there is, there's, there are certain capabilities which I talk mm-hmm. about in the book that you need to build such that you can create 
that following such that you can communicate your idea. And, and a tremendous number of leaders fall down on that communication skill mm-hmm. standpoint. And I talk about that in the book and it, a, a tremendous amount of my coaching is about communication skills. Mm-hmm. But then once you're doing everything right, sometimes you have to evaluate the environment that you're working within. Mm-hmm. And is that actually the right environment for you and the right environment for the type of thinking that thinking that you want to bring forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that I think you have to kind of check all those particular boxes. But even even at a smaller scale, where it's not something that truly is a vision of, ooh, we don't change, this isn't going to exist anymore. Because I, I deal with clients all the time who you know, we've got multiple generations in the workplace. So, you know, older people or seasoned, I'm going to say wisdom owners, people who have been experienced and know how things work, connect, have relationships, are trying to tell people who are just coming out of school and the only thing they know is theory and PowerPoint presentations. And so there's a big gap in between the experience that, you know, because once you get that experience, you can see around corners. You can. Well, you know, th- yeah, there's something interesting there because there, I'm I, I'm a person. So my undergrads in electrical and computer engineering. I did not mm-hmm. do any writing mm-hmm. in my years. I've come to believe that words matter a lot. Yeah. And so, it, my, one of the things my clients learn about me is I will latch onto words. So there's some words you you use there that I, I always caution my clients on. You know how things work. Mm-hmm. You know how things work today. That editor would that I was speaking to would have told me. I know how things work. I know how publishing works. Jerry, you don't. This is your first job in publishing. What in the world do you know? So for the more seasoned person, one of the things that I that I will tell them is to clutch your, your knowledge and your capability less tightly, less tightly. And in, in some ways, that's in some ways, that is to build a bigger sense of security around what you know. Because once I'm more, I'm more secure in myself about my capabilities and what I know and, 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 and what I've learned thus far in my journey, again, the words thus far, then I don't need to hold it as tightly because it's not going to go away. And that allows me to listen a little more deeply to what this young person who is not as experienced knows. And, and there's some interesting, this is not something I talk about in the book, but I think it's, it's very important. There's some interesting research on how our brains change as we age. Mm-hmm. There's you know, this big debate about, you know, younger brains better or older mm-hmm. brains better. And the truth is they're both better. Mm-hmm. But the, 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 it seems that the physiology of the human brain and what we're good at changes with age. So if you have a, a highly detailed task, like, you know, learning a new language or learning a new technology, on average, a younger brain will pick up the details of that task faster mm-hmm. on average. There's you know, differences mm-hmm. by individual on average. However, when you have tasks that involve complex problem solving and critical thinking, it is the older brain that tends to have the connections and to be able to, as you say, think around corners. Mm-hmm. But that more seasoned brain does best if you can marry it with the capabilities of the younger brain. And so what what I, you know, my my clients tend to be people who are further on in their careers. And so what what I tell them is when you're dealing with younger people or even when you're dealing with people who have ideas of, of your own generation, have a lighter touch on what you believe you know. Be more interested, become more interested in what you don't know than in what you know. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an old saying, you know, in in the the mind of the expert, the opportunities are few, but in the mind of the beginner, the the opportunities are many. So I think the challenge, there are many challenges that go on with the younger brain and, you know, people who are early in their careers often have to work on communication and how they present things forward and all that. So there's a whole, there's there's a whole bucket of things. Yeah, a whole set of research and a whole bucket of things there, which many of which I talk about in the book. And for the more mature brain, what we have to work on is actually curiosity. And I would say that um, I, I hear you're trying to make this simplistic. And I'm think, trying to think through from my client base and people who I talk to on the street. The issue is not so much that it, it is being able, when you have wisdom and someone doesn't, trying to paint a picture that allows the person who doesn't have the wisdom to follow to follow the stream of thought. 
it isn't about whether the idea is a good idea or not. It is about this analysis and risk-taking because all businesses, at least my belief is, is that business doesn't fail for a lack of opportunities. They fail because they can't find the right one and execute against it. So they get into this paralysis around, should we stay? Should we go? Should we jump this way? Should we follow that one? Should we, particularly now, because the volume of information that is coming at executives now on what's changing, what's possible, what's not possible, what needs to be retired, et cetera, is so much that it, you almost get this, what you say in the beginning, this adversity, fear, paralysis cycle. But yeah. what it begins yeah. to look like is we have you know 15 possibilities, but we have people who don't know. And, and, they, and right, they may be good at technology, they may be so, good at this, but they can't get past the analysis piece. Yeah, there's something, there's something important in what you said that, that I actually think a little bit differently about. I, I, I don't think businesses fail because of a lack of movement or a lack of opportunities. I, I think the fundamental failing is about not asking the right questions. So what, what I think the real challenge in front of those of us who are further on in our careers and have more, you know, have more wisdom is to start to ask the right questions. So, and one of the things that I will tell people who are in more senior leadership positions, I think that effective leadership is actually not about the art of telling. I think that effective oh, leadership absolutely. is... It, yeah. It's about the art of asking the yeah. right question. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and but so, it's not just asking the right question, but asking the right question of people who actually can help you think through the answer to or the possibilities contained in that curiosity. And I think that's yes. the piece. That's the piece that gets tough when you're in an organization. So, I, I, you know, my businesses or the business and executives that I deal with, they're not the Fortune 100s. They're not the Fortune 500s. So that curiosity, that what I call mental agility, sometimes is a little bit on the stymied side because mm-hmm. they just don't have the breadth of experience, the exposure, the network of people who can actually add value into it. And so that's where, you know, I see so many of them. And, you know, I've been coaching now 16 years. I hate to say that is that they are if they are successful in spite of themselves, not because of themselves. And that yeah. is a that is a a piece of what you're talking about in the thriving mindset of I have this person or group of people who really do have the wisdom of it and they have a huge network and they go. And then we bring in these other young people. And because the people processes are not robust, that flow of information doesn't go very well. And, you know, that that is what I see as one of the biggest issues, you know, the lack of what you call in your your 11 mindset, 11 dimensions, you know, social capital is missing. Do yeah, they have know, enough of the social capital, intellectual yeah. capital? Those kinds of things kill ideas and and, yeah. you know, and make opportunities much more difficult. Yeah, you know what, Denise, you said something there, and you mentioned again that I think is so important. It's another thing that I think we really we really agree on, and that is this notion of social capital. So one of the things that I believe is that our ability to thrive during disruptive times, whatever that the source of that mm-hmm. disruption may be, is tremendously influenced by the people that we that we choose to surround ourselves with. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that is always a critical part of our work is cultivating social capital. So I, I, I actually talk about three types of capital in the book, two of which you've mentioned there. I talk about build, cultivating financial capital and, and financial health, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. incredibly important. I talk about social capital and I talk about intellectual capital. Mm-hmm. So social capital is, is once again, made up of the people that we surround ourselves with. I, I had a client a really long time ago and he had this great quote. He, he was the CEO of a tech startup. And he told me that he thought one of the most important parts of his job was to fill up his Rolodex. Mm-hmm. And I said, so what do you mean by that? And he said, so, you know, what's going to happen is as I go on in business, eventually I'm going to meet someone, I'm going to encounter a problem that I don't know how to solve. Yep. And, it, and at that moment, my success or my company's success is going to be driven by whether I can go to my Rolodex or my metaphorical Rolodex 
and find someone who can help me. And I thought, you know what, that's really brilliant. And, mm-hmm. and over the years, I've extended that into this concept of social capital. I think a, a critical part of the, our professional development and our por- personal development for every single one of us is constantly cultivating our social capital. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. what's going to happen is, and it's not just about startup entrepreneurs, it's about all of us. As, as tech entrepreneurs, you and I as coaches, my the, the corporate execs I coach in the Fortune 100 world or the ones I coach in the startup world, eventually we all encounter issues that we cannot solve on our own. Yep. And, it's, and at those moments, it's going to depend on whether we have somebody that we can go to in our network who can help us. So, and, and people confuse this because sometimes people think, oh yeah, yeah, Jerry, you're saying... It, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that is not what I'm saying at all. Right, right. The, 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 the thing that people have to recognize is that it is what you know, but what you know is tremendously influenced by who you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because who you know, those are the people who tell us about the landmines. Those are the people who tell us about the opportunities that are coming forth. Those are the people who are able to speak on our behalf in rooms where we not may not be present. Exactly. Um, those are the people who, when we encounter some kind of issue, can help us you know, think around those corners, become those thought partners who can help us find solutions. So that notion of social capital is something that at all ages we need to cultivate. And it's not about being best buddies. It's about cultivating that extensive network such that you can find the solutions at those times of disruption so that you can actually turn that disruption into opportunity. And and what I like about it is, is that you're talking about, so you're de- redefining social capital because there's all, part of the problem is, is that we have, you know, in this time of disruption, we've got words that are kind of flying around that we haven't quite landed on a meaning about. It's kind of back to my thing of alternative facts. It's become, you know, ubiquitous in our society right at this moment. But this idea of social capital is also the same as network capital. It is the ability mm-hmm. to have people who help you think through tough solutions, identify them for you. But on the other side, it is also those individuals who can socialize an idea and act as your emissary. Because oftentimes Absolutely. the person that you there are some messages. I had to learn this as as a the senior, you know, VP of HR. There are just sometimes I can't be the messenger. It many has times. nothing to do with me. Right. There are many times <laughs> you can't be the messenger. To, but it has to do with the title I have. It has to do with the role that people perceive me with. And I yep. just can't be the messenger per se. And if I didn't have the network inside or outside of my organization to kind of seed ideas in and to let people know that the possibility exists that we really could be successful if we went down this road and that we can come up with a execution plan, a closing the gap plan in which we're really talking about at every step, how are we making, how are we measuring where we go? Because in my, my world, measure what, being able to measure what matters, not everything that's there, but measure what's matter and signals us towards success on a regular basis or pause. Those are the kinds of things that you need to know. And then the other side of, you know, the whole idea of of succeeding in disruption for me is also cultivating uh, what I call a practice of patiently being patient. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. <laughs> you just yeah, sometimes I, I you just you just gotta you you give a person an idea and you've got to give it to them in such a way that they are marinating on it for a long time. <laughs> and then they have the ability, you have to have the wherewithal where they can come back and say, you know, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, there are actually three things you said there I think are really important. So one, something that I tell my clients all the time, many important decisions and conversations about you mm-hmm. will happen when you are not in the room. Absolutely. So and don't fear critical. it. And don't fear and don't, that. No, it, it's just fear it or don't. It's reality that that is the way it works. Most of the important conversations about you are going to happen when you're not in the room. So it's critical that you have someone in the room who is going to who's going to speak up in your behalf on your behalf, right. and that's part of what social capital becomes. The other thing that happens, and I think you're talking about here, is it's important to have social capital with people who will actually challenge your ideas. 
mm-hmm. and help you evolve your ideas. And that's where curiosity comes in. Because one of the one of the 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 things I work with clients on all the time, and, I, and, and I'm hearing this behind some of the challenges that you see, is people will come to me and they say, you know what, I've got this idea. I've got a great, it's a great idea and I cannot get people to walk forward with, move forward with it. And I just feel really, really stuck. And I developed this tool when I, when I was actually leading teams, I will tell them, I will say to my client, okay, I want you to tell me the story from behind your, your adversary's eyes. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? I want you to tell me the story. I want you to tell me the objections. Like, why are they objecting to this? Well, they're objecting it because, you know, they're an idiot or they don't understand. And I say, well, wait a minute. If they were here in the room with me, would they say that? Would they say that I'm objecting this because I'm an idiot? Well, no, I wouldn't say that. Okay, well, what would they say? And what's amazing to me is how often people don't understand their the 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 person who's challenging them. They don't understand yeah. the motive. And so then the assignment is always, okay, I want you to go back and I want you to listen and I want you to do nothing but listen. And I want you to just ask why questions and to get so deep that you can come back to me and tell me the story from their point of view. Mm-hmm. And the mistake people think is that the mistake people make is they think that if I stop talking, then that means I'm going to be run over. And, and my asking questions means that I'm giving in Getting the answers. Yeah, <laughs> right. And that is not true at all. Yeah. The fact that you're asking questions means that you want to understand. Mm-hmm. And so the when you're running into, I'm thinking about the challenge you're talking to me before, they just can't get people to, to agree or they can't get young people to understand. I would say stop talking and start asking questions. Mm-hmm. Start to really deeply, profoundly understand the challenge from the other person's point of view. Mm-hmm. Then come back and explain it to me from the other person's point of view. And when you leave the room it, and, and, you, and you've taken their point of view, that doesn't mean that you've agreed. You say, you know what? I really want to thank you for taking the time to explain this to me. You've given me some interesting things to think about. I'm going to be back mm-hmm. with what I think. Mm-hmm. Give me and some time it, to think. Exactly. And that yeah. time is critical. But the, the most important skill here is listening mm-hmm. to really be able to ask those questions and go deep and understand it from the other person's point of view. Sometimes when you do this, you actually do change your ideas. Yeah. And I find that 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 can happen when. So you mentioned like older people who are trying to explain to younger people or not older people necessarily. More it, could be one, people. it could be person in one function versus another. Function. Exactly. Trying to explain to other people. This is how things work. Well, like those are very dangerous words. This is how things work. This is how things have worked up until this point. Please help me understand, you know, in in the context of this is how things work. Help me understand more deeply. What is it you want to do? Okay. Like, so how will you deal with the constraint of this is how things work? And they really, really get into that questioning mindset and understand what the other person is thinking. Yeah, I just do it a diff- slightly different, sorry to interrupt, but slightly different because I find it very difficult for people to, in the moment, until they've been working with me for a while, to be able to flip that conversation the way you're talking about. What I will say is, this: when somebody says, when this is how it works here, I will say, be clear about the challenge that you're doing and ask them, how will it work if this happens? Exactly. And, and so that's a question. Pull, yes. And that's a question. So it's, they can flip it. Subtle, I find that people can flip it really quick in that, but to ask right. them the way yeah. you're talking about it, it takes a, it takes a real skill. It's a skill. And that is a skill that we want to cultivate. And I yep. think as you, as you rise in the leadership ranks or as you aspire to rise in the leadership ranks, your curiosity is one of your greatest assets mm-hmm. and people, people don't recognize it. And, and you just illustrated it there because what you did was you became curious about, okay, you know, given that this is how it has worked to date. And this is, these are some of the constraints we've, 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 we have, we've, we encountered or we have to live within. What is your thinking about how your idea would work in that world? Or what are your, what is your thinking about how you would overcome those constraints? And if you can ask those questions with a genuine sense of curiosity, not as in a like in a cross-examining legal way where you're trying to force your opponent into mm-hmm. into a corner, because people know when you're trying to do that. Yeah, yeah. When you're but trying when to you sell. become when, exactly, don't sell. 
become curious. Mm-hmm. And when you become curious, it's a, re- it's a really interesting thing. Y- you learn things and they learn mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. So what, what, I, what I will tell my client is whenever you feel yourself getting rooted into like becoming like rigid in your approach, mm-hmm. that's actually a little bit of a sign of this adversity for your paralysis cycle. Because, you know, we can all say that, you know, Codex leaders probably said to Steve Sasson, this is how it works. Like we take it on pictures, we develop it. Like this is how the and business model works. Re- and had very, and had good, very reasons good reasons why we should to- not do. Exactly. And there are always very good reasons why you should not do it. But if you can become curious, curious about, well, like, wait, you know, this, we've got, there's a lot of reasons why we do it differently. But tell me more about you. Like, tell me more about what you're thinking here. And, you know, often what you're going to hear back is not workable, or you're going to hear that there is some fundamental flaw in their logic. Mm -hmm. However, you may also have an answer to that fundamental flaw once you understand it. So to to take it back to this notion of the thriving mindset, and, and you asked me about how you take these courageous leaps, that notion of leveraging as you put question in your vernacular questioning or flipping it into a question in my vernacular about leveraging your curiosity and building curiosity as a fundamental mm-hmm. skill. Mm-hmm. That is one of those 11 dimensions for how you take these courageous leaps to turn mm-hmm. disruption in, 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 into opportunity. And we can even fast forward this into, into today's world. So yeah. there is all kinds of stuff going on around us. So I am literally, when we finish up today, I'm going to go back to an article I'm writing about, like, how do we make this hybrid work from home? And I'm now saying work from anywhere model work in the future. And, you know, it's not the very far future. It's actually, excuse me, right now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty right close. Here. It's like, yeah. you know, this afternoon. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yes, 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 yes. And, yes. and, I, and I, ha- I literally have clients where they have now said, okay, so we're going back to the office and in a month, two months, whatever, I want, you know, people to start coming back into the office two days a week, three days a week, five days a week, whatever it is. And they have, you know, fairly significant people in the company who are raising their hands and saying, mm-hmm. we sold our house. We don't live in the same state any, anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, wow. And I think this disruption of, you know, now hybrid work, in addition to all kinds of challenges, Mm -hmm. is going to bring all kinds of opportunity as well. And and it's a complicated thing. And this, this is where that opportunity really is. So I'll, you know, give you, you know, one thing that I'm, that I've been pondering recently. So, you know, from a diversity standpoint, there, there is a concern with work from anywhere because it's not everybody who's going to want to work from home. Mm-hmm. What the data and, is and starting, they can't. And they can't. They can't. Right. So what the data is starting to suggest is that for one thing, women of who are of the age where they are more likely to have young children are more likely to want to take advantage of work from home possibilities because it gives more flexibility to be with the children. Mm-hmm. Men, whether they whatever they are age are, are more likely to be in the office. Mm-hmm. So what's it going to do to promotion opportunities when the, you know, we, it's all about bumping into each other and those opportunities for creative collisions in the those office. It's often because relationships, often goes, yeah. So that's on one side of, of the of this. However, totally other side of the spectrum. I have a client that I was speaking to just yesterday who's in Colorado, in Boulder, Colorado, which where I actually leave, used to live. And Boulder, Colorado has zero racial diversity. I mean, it's mm-hmm. real when I, when I, when I, my husband and I moved away, it literally affected the stats like one mm-hmm. black man moving away. It's that few. <laughs> and so this particular company, you know, has a tremendous interest and passion, I will say, around creating racial diversity within the workplace. Mm-hmm. Very difficult in this geography. They're shifting to work from anywhere. It opens opportunities that they did not have before. Right. Because now, and so that, you know, it's an interesting balance of challenge and opportunity. And so I think we're walking into this time where there are those, these, these really, that we, we've hit disruption. It's going to be disruptive and there's going to be a lot of fear and there's going to be a lot of challenges we have to overcome. 
But like that's one little like, you know, tip of the iceberg about how, yeah, like it's disruptive times can be a lot of challenges like for diversity and inclusion. This work from anywhere brings challenge on one side. Wait a minute. There's also opportunity there. Like and I think it's and, and again, the center of gravity for my work is creating the people with the thriving mindset such that they can start to look at these disruptions and understand how do you find the opportunity within the disruption. And it's about building that type of mindset. And I think those are the people who, those are skills we can train. Mm -hmm. And that's what my coaching work is all about is training in those skills. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the people who go on to be the most um, successful in these disruptive times. And there's nothing in front of us but disruptive times. Yes, and, and success will change too. And so, exactly. you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, you guys, you've listened to me for a, a bit of time here with my guest, Mr. Valentine, and his book is, what is it again? Say it. The, Thrive, the Thriving Mindset, Tools for Empowerment in a Disruptive World. You can find it on my website, which is Jerry Valentine, G-E-R-R-Y-V-A-L-E-N-T-I-N-E.com. Mm-hmm. Go to my website. You can find a link to the book. You, on my website, you can actually download the first chapter of the book for free if mm-hmm. you would like. Mm-hmm. And you can find my book, again, The Thriving Mindset, Tools for Empowerment in a Disruptive World on Amazon.com. And I hope I, I hope you will take the opportunity to purchase the book. Yes. And, you know, if, you, if you're dealing with disruption in your organization or you think you're you, you just need someone to help be a thought partner um, with you to help you see the opportunity in disruption, you know, Gary is the right person to pick up the phone and call. Well, you know, what I say every week, every week when you hear the end of the podcast, listen, share it. Even if you like it, even if you don't like it, because in sharing it, you're going to find new ideas will pop up. And I guarantee it will be one of the best conversations that you have with individuals who are really looking to understand how to thrive in disruptive times. With that, I want to tell you this. It's a wrap, folks. Bye. Bingo. That's a wrap. And I'm Denise Cooper, and you've been listening to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. Let me thank my good friend, Ivan G. Hall, for the background music. I'd like to ask you to do three things. One, if you liked it, share it with your friends. Let's build up our community. Two, subscribe so that you don't miss when a new episode drops. And lastly, if you've got a question or comment, leave it below. I'd love to hear what you thought was good, what I could do better, and what topics you'd like to hear about. Let me thank my guests one more last time. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.